What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidit Tagawal, and let's get started. And once we kind of got that launched uh, with a lot of help from a bunch of different mentors and other people, um, I just I just realized I've got no energy to do anything. I, I, all I can do is do things that give me energy back. Uh, because otherwise I'm just I just kind of fall apart so um, I started to actually take an inventory of what it was that gave me energy back like what felt like um, running downhill what felt like it was kind of catalyzing more for me and uh, and that's where that whole energy management thing started to come from Uh, and I think what what really changed honestly was getting sick like I up until that point was just all about ambition, ambition, more bright, shiny objects, more achievements. And I kind of saw myself as needing to be in the middle of all of those achievements. Um, And I think when I got sick and I realized, you know, what I'm really getting energy from is working with founders and them being in the center and me being on the sidelines as kind of a cheerleader, uh, that that really changed for me. And that was what I wanted to do. And I, I, I only wanted to do that. That's James Tynan, and this is episode 88. It's always a test for me to speak to someone of the caliber of James, because there's so much context to his journey to date, and in this we've covered a lot of it. Growing up in an ambitious household, with his mum an architect, and dad a doctor and businessman, James talks about being very driven from day one. We cover a whole bunch, including why James felt the need to move to the US post-university, learning movement building with a startup called Purpose in New York, helping scale Khan Academy from a YouTube channel to the world's biggest edtech at that time. I asked James about his learnings from dealing with a number of autoimmune illnesses, what exactly is energy over time management, and why the usual hacks don't quite work, how does Squarepeg differ to other VCs, his own development areas, and more. Please enjoy. James Steinen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleased to have you on. Let's start with some quick facts to set the scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in Sydney, Australia, and I still live in Sydney, Australia. (laughs) But you have lived around the world. We will get to that a bit later on. And what was your first job and what do you do now? Uh, My first job, I had two. I was uh, teaching debating and also uh, blowing car parks, like, you know, with a, you know, those leaf blower things, mm. like <laughs> clearing out car parks for a landscaping company. I definitely like the debating one was much easier, uh, but I'm glad I did both. I'm glad he clarified the blowing car parks was with the leaf blower. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of was going to a weird place. <laughs> yeah. And and the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer and we like showcasing relatable role models that perhaps haven't got the recognition they deserve. Is there someone in your life that comes to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, the first person that comes to mind is my wife Kate, not because she hasn't got a lot of um acclaim for what she does, which she she has. Um but I think there's probably a lot more coming. So she was a uh, um the head of comms for consumer in Google and then for global uh, consumer YouTube and then went and did comms for a bunch of startups and is now um, kind of out on her own building a bunch of kind of brand positioning, uh, you know, work for um, for startups and also coaching and working with uh, women executives, largely in technology. And I think that that particular part is going to get a lot more recognition um, over the coming years. Yeah, go Kate. Um, love to zoom out and talk about your sunrise, your childhood. Starting off with kind of the environment and family, what what are your reflections when you think back to your early life? Yeah, listen, I was thinking because you, you mentioned this in the in the pre-interview, and I, I think I mean my take on my sunrise is that it was great. Like I I loved um, growing up. I had a, like heaps of cousins. It was just like 
an awesome time. I think looking back on it more recently, I've realized that it was actually a lot crazier than, than mm. I thought. Um, and so for me, uh, when I was around 10, uh, my mum went blind and, um, and that kind of caused a, a, a real change to the family. And, um, and it's been funny to reflect. Mm, I appreciate you sharing that. Tell us about your parents. What did mum and dad do? My dad was a uh, like a former doctor who then went into business. So he's kind of like a, a bit of an odd um, mix. And my mum was an architect who would um, build our houses. So I kind of lived in a lot of houses growing up and the smell of brick dust is still someone that makes me feel very much at home. And what are your memories of high school? Because I think, and I've spoken to a lot of people leading up to this, they talk about you being very emotionally intelligent, you being very ambitious. Was that something in school you got that feedback? Like, oh, were you a kind of just a normal kid in school and you were just going about life and later in life you've become this kind of self-awareness? Yeah, I think at school I don't think I was very self-aware uh, at all. Um, I think I was a bit of a mess. and um, But, I, st- I, you know, it was there was a lot of really great stuff that I had access to. Debating was a big thing for me at school, um, basketball. And um, and then, yes, I was very ambitious and driven and uh, was kind of flogging myself to make sure I got that, you know, top score and, you know, did that. And then I think kind of chilled out a little bit from there <laughs> having achieved that. And when you think back to your influences, like if I think back to myself, my influences, of course, my parents, but then I also had some teachers or cousins who played a big part in my early formation, my first 10 years of my life. Who were some of your influences growing up, whether it was your teachers or people in the broader environment that you reflect on now that shaped some of your thinking early on? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was talking to a friend of mine about that the other day, and we both kind of reflected on the fact that we didn't really have we, some uh, like amazing mentors who are kind of the next uh, jump above us. And in fact, we looked to each other. Like, I think I was mm. very blessed to have a really tight knit group of excellent friends and we all supported each other and learned from each other. And that was, um, I think that really was a huge part of, of who I am today, you know, largely form my sense of humor and all of those kinds of things. There's actually a report I read yesterday saying that 90% of our perspective as humans is actually formed in the first seven years of our life, which is a crazy stat when you think about it, right? Yeah, it's terrifying for parents. <laughs> and, and you mentioned being ambitious, like, if you fast forward to the age of say 18, where you've got some understanding of the world, you're growing as a, as a person on this planet, what was success at that age? Like what would have fulfilled you in life? Oh my goodness. I I think I was so narrowly focused on, you know, getting a really good score in the high school certificate, like, you know, being a top basketball player, being a top debater. Um, I had no idea what I was doing afterwards. And I think, I was actually quite, I found it quite difficult because I was interested in so many different things. Like I was doing up like kind of visual arts and drama and computer studies and high level maths. So I was kind of a, a very weird kid in that I, I was kind of into all of the different things. And so I think at, at age 18, I remember being terrified of stopping growing. That was the thing that I was mm. terrified of. Like, what if I just plateau out and I'm just going to be like a boring person <laughs> who stops growing somewhere. And I, I remember having that conversation uh, with my mom at one stage and she was just like looking at me like, oh, like you just, just relax, mate. <laughs> like it, you're just a little bit too intense. <laughs> so it sounds like that self-awareness started to develop when you were, when you were 18, right? Yeah. Although I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard. I, I imagine everyone's like this. You mm. look back on who you were at 18, you're like, Oh, man, <laughs> just, you know, just, you need to relax. You need to kind of zoom out, kind of have a, a better, more perspective on, on the world. But of course you can only get there as fast as you can get there. And I, I definitely had, you know, things like that, that I, I wanted to, I was obsessed with 
with personal growth and development and intellectual growth and development um, and physical, to be honest. <laughs> but um, but yeah, that was that was a big part of what I was obsessing about then. I'd love to go into magic moments. This is probably the segment listeners love the most because we unpack some of the moments that people might not see on your LinkedIn profile and, and some experiences that have made you better and people you've met. And I think the first one I want to touch on is moving cultures. And, and you've spoken about this in other podcasts and even in my research, a number of people mentioned that when you were quite young, you were fascinated with moving outside of Australia and, and you went to the US. Mm. Um, can you talk to that? Again, that was fairly early in your life. Um, what were some of the kind of priorities at that age? And and I know you said Australia was sort of nascent in a way in terms of the startup ecosystem. What was that move like and what are your memories from that period? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the, the story is that I started a company in first year uni and that it kind of took off uh, a little bit um, and that caused me to kind of pause uni and um, and then kind of ended up going back part-time. And I got very frustrated uh, because I had this little startup. I was doing everything wrong, mm. um, but I, what, what was frustrating was there was no one to really talk to, to connect with. When I looked to raise funds, that was almost impossible. And then uh, when I was selling the business, there was just no market available. So I ended up kind of getting this small little sale and traveling around the world and basically being disgusted by the the state of the Australian tech ecosystem or the non-existence of it, probably more accurately. And um, so that kind of took me to McKinsey and Company where I was looking for a ticket over to Silicon Valley because I knew that people had done that in the past. And so, yeah, when I eventually got to the US, it was with a sense of how do I get involved in the bigger technology startup game uh, and how do I plug myself into that culture? And yeah, that was that was the focus. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, James, and I, and I noticed after your McKinsey stint, you joined a company where you're general manager purpose, which is a really fascinating title because you hear the word purpose thrown around so much, but you don't see a company that is centered on purpose. Can you talk to what were maybe two or three of your learnings then? Uh, and I understand you worked with political movements and you worked with the Obama administration. What have you taken away from that role that you applied in, in future roles? Yeah, sure. It was uh, a mate of mine from McKinsey had helped start this startup in New York, actually. And uh, it was the founders of GetUp. Some of the founders of GetUp met some folks from the Obama 2008 uh, campaign. And it was right as this idea of online campaigning, online movement building was hitting. And they were incubating a bunch of different uh, movements, including the world's largest LGBT rights organization at the time. And uh, I came on board because they'd raised some money to see whether they could start something in the kind of consumer movement space, kind of getting people to nudge uh, companies and use their their purchasing power for good. And um, ultimately, uh, I learned a lot by working with, you know, some of those Obama and, and get up people about what's possible in movement building online and, and what needs to be offline. And ultimately that took me out to uh, Silicon Valley, which was, was where I kind of joined Khan Academy. So I think probably the, you know, I learned a lot about movement building and then I also was exposed to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the West Coast and the Bay Area. And those are the kind of the two big things I, I took away. And then you mentioned Khan Academy. I think that's really fascinating. Like a lot of our listeners are in Australia with, with some in, in Asia and Khan Academy is this juggernaut of a business and, and movement, frankly, now. But you joined at sort of the ground level of the operation in 2014 with business development. I guess the, the and you were there for almost five years. And I know you've got, if listeners want to Google your name, you've written a thesis about education and you've invested in a number of edtech startups now as well through your current role, which we'll get to in a second. But what were you most surprised by in your five years building Khan Academy with with the team and the co-founders that you feel helps you now when you look at edtech and sort of early stage company building broadly? Oh my goodness, so much. And and I should say, you know, it, I definitely came on early at Khan Academy, but um, there was, you know, there were people there before me and what I think has been amazing about that journey was that it was from kind of YouTube channel to world's biggest mm. ed tech at the time. Um, but I think, yeah, so many lessons and things that, that I could have done better. What do I take away? Uh, oh, a bunch of things. 
One is what it's like to be a leader in a product-led organization. I think up to that point, I've been in largely kind of strategy or sales-led organizations and realizing that, in fact, one of the first things that happened when I got there was the head of engineering sent me a blog post where the the title was um, product is greater than strategy is greater than marketing. And I was like, and coming in as someone who was doing kind of marketing and BD and that kind of thing, it was very much a, a kind of like, oh, okay, that's that's how we think about things here. And he's kind of keen for me to understand that. And uh, But it was great. I mean, I, once I kind of understood what that means and how important product can be and how to lead in a world where you still want to give enormous amounts of autonomy to the folks actually building products. I think that was a a really excellent lesson for me. And just to have pattern recognition for what a fast growing, excellent product team looks like uh, was was awesome. Um, But I mean, on the other side, I think there was some really interesting personal learnings too. Like, I think that I realized that um, in order to be really, In order to lead a company and lead big chunks of a company, you really need to level up your ability to manage yourself. So Mm -hmm. your ability to manage others is a function of your ability to manage yourself. And I think what um, what got me to kind of increasingly senior and more and more senior roles was an ability to just kind of do a lot of work and look at what everyone else needed and kind of make sure, make, make, like, just make sure it got done. And, um, once I was much more senior, I realized, oh, wait a sec, that doesn't really work. My days are kind of filling up with what everyone else needs from me. Uh, but uh, once I'd had, you know, once we'd had Charlie, my, my, uh, my firstborn, um, you know, that, my nights were no longer available mm-hmm. to kind of finish up all on, on my own work. So it was a, a bit of a, a lesson in how to organize myself in order to better lead others. Can you, can you double click on that maybe? Because I think listeners would relate to that because that's something, particularly now in a remote world and, and COVID, we saw that where there was so much pressure on people's time and we were all kind of reactive and going from one Zoom meeting to another and, and getting all this screen time. How did you sort of, like, and again, back to your point about emotional intelligence and ambition, it's almost like trying to balance so many conflicting priorities with emotional intelligence, ambition, and then scaling a business where you've got investors and you need to sort of hit milestones. What, what did you like learn about, about helping people sort of connect to your vision? And do you share learnings from that with founders now that are at that early stage? Oh, totally. I mean, what did I learn? Uh, one, I don't think emotional intelligence and business outcomes are intention. I actually mm-hmm. think they pull together and force multiply each other. I'll tell a kind of random story about that, which is that at Khan Academy, um, listeners in the in Australia may not know this, but in in the US, your gateway to college and university is all mediated by one particular exam called the SAT, yeah. and uh, at Khan Academy, we had partnered with, in what I thought was a masterstroke, you know, we got this great partnership with um, with the college board who runs that, that um, exam. And what I thought was great was that it was going to take us from the edges of education right into the center of the system and make Khan Academy, give every student in the country a reason to, to use Khan Academy. Um, but what I didn't realize was that there were a bunch of, or it was on the periphery of my perception was that there were a bunch of people who joined Khan Academy, not to prop up the current system, but to completely disrupt it. And they saw this as a betrayal of, of some of our uh, most deeply held ideals. And so managing that, you know, it was a tension. So the tension between, um, we want to grow, we want to be important to the system, but we also want to disrupt it. And we've got these people who, you know, part of their self-image is that they're not actually being a part of these horrible standardized tests and, and, and all of these other things. And so um, that's where I think having some emotional intelligence and the ability to understand what's going to be necessary to drive the business forward um, is is crucial. And you mentioned at the start of the conversation about your interest to move out of Australia and you went to the US and you built all this experience. And and then as people would see on your LinkedIn profile, you decided to come back to Australia. 
can you touch to what was the magic moment that made you want to come back to Australia, whether it was by choice or because of opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. I um, came back for a visa. <laughs> it was kind of a mistake. <laughs> I, I was not planning to come back mm. more permanently, just a visa renewal and happened to coincide with the Sunrise, mm. um, which is you know Blackbird's conference. And um, you know Nick Crocker and some other friends kind of put me in touch with some great Australian founders, including Didier from Culture Amp. And I, I think on that trip, I met, you know, Cliff from Canva and, mm-hmm. uh, and Luke from Safety Culture. And it was, I, thought, I suddenly thought from leaving Australia in disgust at the fact that there was nothing, no kind of startup culture to coming back and realizing that some of the best companies around happened to be Australian was a huge eye-opener. And I just, I thought I made the decision almost or within a month i'd made the decision okay i think my next step is going to be in australia and and was there anything about that that surprised you because i think there's been other guests you mentioned some of the names there nick or nikki or or founders as well who've kind of spoken about how it was almost a blank canvas in those early days and you could really have a a real impact because you could bring in and you mentioned blackbird and and nikki obviously was also in new york and and he moved and i'm sure you would have worked with him in the early days what was that like early on? Like, was it a lot of experimenting and that blank can was actually an advantage? Or did you feel there was a pressure because you came from Khan Academy and you were this US Silicon Valley guy coming in and kind of uh, kind of copy-pasting a high-growth culture in Australia? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, well, I think I missed some of the really blank canvas stuff because I mm. went away, right, as as Nikki and people like Nikki, people like Paul Bassett, you know, starting Square Peg, Nikki mm. starting Startmate and then Blackbird. You know, it, the, I, I went away for a lot of those initial years mm. where things were real blank canvas. Uh, but I think when I came back, it was very malleable, right? Like I think I came back to take over Startmate and that was at that point, um, it was just it was just having a hard time. You know, it was kind of, it had been run as this side project uh, by Nikki and then by Nick and, you know, Sam and some others within Blackbird. Uh, and I was kind of tasked with how do we make this its own thing? How do we get it to stand on its own two feet? And I think that was um, where a lot of my kind of background became relevant. I think that the, 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 the blank canvas stage was like, why doesn't Australia have an accelerator? Why doesn't Australia have some amazing VCs? And that was, uh, I give full credit to everyone who came before me on that, on that front. Uh, I think my role was really to kind of take this thing that had been uh, on the side and kind of set it up as its own, uh, as its own entity and with its own, you know, funding and its own, um, you know, programs and that kind of thing beyond, um, beyond the accelerator, et cetera. I won't ask you about your role at Startmex. I think you've spoken about that in other podcasts and, and people yeah. can read between the lines about what the role was. But I know during that time you had something happen in your life and you realized the importance of energy management over time management. Um, can you can you talk us through that? Um, and I'm, I apologize if it's a story you don't want to kind of bring up, but you can choose what parts you'd like to share about. But what was your kind of, what was that magic moment that, because I think a lot of listeners and I've gone through it to my own life where you have those moments, but you don't take the moment to reflect and change. You kind of just carry on and you go, yeah, I'm just going to push on and I'm strong. And why, why is this something happening to me? But you decided to stop and reflect and write about it. Can you take us inside that moment and, and how that happened? Well, yeah, I mean, I honestly did not decide to stop so much as I was forced to stop. I think mm-hmm. um, basically I, over the course of, uh, a few months, uh, my immune system started attacking a bunch of different parts of my body, uh, you know, arthritis, joints, thyroid, you know, and um, uh, and I woke up on, uh, one day and half my face didn't work because it was attacking the facial nerve. Um, it's called Bell's palsy. Uh, so there was a lot of like pain and difficulty, but the real problem was fatigue. I was just so fatigued I would like walk to the the um the kitchen and have to sit down and I couldn't form sentences I couldn't there were no I felt felt like I had you know had a stroke or something I was literally having that much trouble kind of communicating and um I I now look at when people talk about long COVID and some of the things that they're having there and I'm like ah that that makes a lot of sense like that's the kind of thing that that um that I was experiencing 
And uh, so it was, it was forced, I was being forced to stop and, and reflect. And I think what happened was at the time I was trying to launch the Startmate Fellowship and I was just in the middle of so many things. And once we kind of got that launched uh, with a lot of help from a bunch of different mentors and other people, um, I just, I just realized I've got no energy to do anything. I, all I can do is do things that give me energy back. Uh, because otherwise I'm just, I just kind of fall apart. So um, I started to actually take an inventory of what it was that gave me energy back, like what felt like um, running downhill, what felt like it was kind of catalyzing more for me. And, uh, and that's where that whole energy management thing started to come from uh, was that first question. I think on that, on that point about energy management, listeners might be in a similar place or want to improve their life and and i think when you google energy management you hear about work on your calendar or go to the gym or go to bed at night or drink green tea or something like that what's been one sort of practical unlock that you feel has really benefited oh that's such a perfect way to ask the question because i think that it's really problematic that people are looking at ways to kind of hack their way toward energy management with like a, a certain type of tea or a certain morning routine. I mean, all of that stuff is good, but I think that when you're in a, the position that I was in, none of it is enough. Like it's all kind of like five or 2% solutions. And I think that for me, the bigger, the bigger unlock here is to work out what you're about, like work out what gives you energy back. And so the way I think about doing that is to acknowledge that there's often two different sides of you in any given, uh, in anything you're kind of looking at. You've got a, a more kind of internal emotional side that kind of reacts to things and doesn't really, um, doesn't really kind of care about what your strategy is for the day. It's the, 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 the part of you that kind of hates the fact that you've booked 14 Zoom meetings in back to back. Like everyone's got that inner part. And then you've got the kind of more executive function part that's like all ambitious and trying to kind of push you forward and trying to do the right strategic thing for you and your career. And when those two things, when those two sides of yourself are in conflict, it, you're just burning energy. Uh, even if, um, you know, you're, you're doing something that you ostensibly, you know, like or should be doing. But when those two things are in, in concert, when they're working together, you could be working really, really hard. And it could be something that, that is called your job. And like, it's not, it's, it's work, it's not home life, it's not a rest, but you could, you're actually picking up momentum and picking up energy because you've got those two sides of yourself working in concert. So again, that's, that's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit theoretical, but I think it's, it's the, the, biggest mistake that people make is to think that they can kind of life hack their way to this thing, whereas it actually requires mm. you to kind of go inward a little bit and think about what are you about? What, what makes you feel like those two sides of yourself are in are working together? I think one thing that's actually helped me is yoga and meditation. I think I was a very anti yoga and meditation guy. Cause I was like, I'm not this Zen guy. Why do I need to be this monk style lifestyle i live in the city i'm a hustler but but that's been a huge unlock is like just meditating for five an hour to ten minutes a few times a week and do yoga once a week which yeah to, to your point earlier it depends on priorities like if you've got a really busy family and work life then how do you fit that in but starting small is often the answer there as well I think so. And I think that yoga and meditation are really interesting in that they create space for more of that alignment to happen. And they kind of chill out the the kind of more internal emotional side of yourself to the point where you're more able to work in concert with it. Like, I think if you're just completely neglecting, as I think I was, and a lot of really type A achiever type people are, they see their body and that that kind of like internal self as a resource. Mm. It's just like, I'm just going to thrash this thing as hard as I can to do as much as I can. And uh, and even when we talk like these type A people, when even when we talk about health, what we're really talking about is performance. Mm. We want to be doing marathons and, you know, swimming, you know, triathlons and all kinds of stuff. And that's it's a very different engagement with those two sides of the self. It's, it's a, it's a very unbalanced one. And I think bringing the two into, into concert is really where that power comes from. And, uh, and that's, you know, meditation, yoga, they don't necessarily, you know, work for everyone, but for some people, I think they can help give that space to kind of get that, that, um, 
that connection happening. Mm. You, you might start getting a few yoga startups reaching out to you, James, looking for funding. So stay <laughs> tuned. <laughs> uh, I want to I uh, pin this for a second because I've got a few more questions on this human side because I think a lot of people have spoken to yeah. you talked about it. But before we get to that, I want to talk about your your transition from StartMate because I think when you're at StartMate, you're the pinnacle of the Australian startup ecosystem. You're working with all the VCs, all the startups. You're kind of mm-hmm. the world's your oyster in, in, a, in a way, right? Can you, can you, can you share your thought process about how from that you decided to go to VC? Because some people might look at that and go, you've got this really strong operator experience. You've led the biggest accelerator in Australia. You've built your own reputation through it and, and built a really strong network. And then you want to go to the other side of the table. Can you take us inside some of your sort of focuses at the end of 2019 and how that VC move happened? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it was funny if I rewind back to being at McKinsey I remember one of the the senior people asking me like where do you want to go ultimately and I think I said oh you know I just think VC is just like that's where I want to be I'd love to be able to be across lots of different ideas and in the flow of just the the cutting edge of what people are trying to achieve and um and I remember the person being like yeah but seriously like in Australia like what do you want to do we don't have that because we he was right like we actually didn't have that that industry at the time and um, so I think it was always something I, I was uh, interested in. I think part of the attraction of Startmate was the ability to use my operator toolkit mm-hmm. in a way that was straddling both worlds. You know, I was, yes, I was running and building a company and trying to make it um, scale, but I was also, you know, investing in, I think we invested in like 43 companies over the course of the time that, that I was running it. And that was a thrill. And I think what, what really changed, honestly, was getting sick. Like I, up until that point, was just all about ambition, ambition, more bright, shiny objects, more achievements. And I, I kind of saw myself as needing to be in the middle of all of those achievements. Um, and I think when I got sick and I realized, you know, what I'm really getting energy from is working with founders and them being in the center and me being on the sidelines as kind of a cheerleader, uh, that that really changed for me. I, and that was what I wanted to do. And I, I, I only wanted to do that. I was kind of like all this running a company stuff and operating stuff is, is actually a drain on me. Whereas I feel like whenever I'm working with a founder and helping them, I'm, I'm getting so much energy from this. So it became a real no brainer. And, and listeners might not be aware you joined Squarepeg in May, 2020. Now we know 2020 mm-hmm. was something called COVID joined us yeah. in our in our lives. And, and I was actually on an AMA the other day with one of the other VCs that are quite prominent. And something they spoke about, which I wanted to ask you, is they said when they hired their partners, it was sink or swim. When they hired their principals, it was sink or swim. But when they hired their mm-hmm. associates, you couldn't do sink or swim because the associates needed support. Now you went in as a principal, first VC role, covid remote working take us inside that time like what were kind of how did you get up to speed with the role like was it sink or swim what are your reflections from those first three months of joining SquarePeg? oh it's so funny i mean very much covid was was a presence i started on may the 4th star wars day and it was actually <laughs> the, the the square peg offsite which had been transitioned to kind of a zoom mm. offsite so it was very much on everyone's mind that we weren't able to get together and and for the square peg team getting together as a team is so important i mean it's that human side of things is just core to to what we do and so everyone was was really feeling the lack of it and um and i think that to your point about sink or swim I just never thought like that. I just, uh, it's amazing listening to that because I was like, wow, that, that was not even in my consciousness. Mm. And I think that it was probably part of the reason that I went to SquarePeg because there's this culture at SquarePeg, which is w- when you're in, you're in, you know, it's kind of like if we invest in you, if we hire you, we believe in you and, uh, and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure you're a success. And I think that I just felt that from the beginning that people had my back and they wanted me to be successful. And, you know, uh, it didn't feel like a a kind of sink or swim situation. It felt like a bunch of people working together and trying to be successful together. 
one of the things that when I was doing my research for this episode and I spoke to Jethro and your team, Casey, I spoke to a few founders, they all talked about the, the ability you have to make founders very comfortable in the first meeting and, and connects back to your point about emotional intelligence. And, and hopefully by this stage, you, you are emotionally intelligent as you maybe you weren't <laughs> when you were 18. Can you, can you share that? Because I think I'm sure a lot of founders are, would listen to this interview and, and they are listeners to the show and, and and the reality is it is intimidating when you present to a VC. It is hard to be that, and particularly female founders or certain demographics find it really tricky to ask for money and be very kind of candid about that. Can you take us inside your thinking? Like say I'm a founder and I've reached out to you and you go, cool, I like your idea. Let's set up a 30-minute Zoom call. How do you start the meeting? How like What have you sort of learned about making founders feel comfortable but still asking the hard questions? How do you balance that out? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I think sometimes when when something's just close to your personality, it's it's hard to see it. Mm. But I think that one of the things that I think about is first, this is about connection, not impressing somebody. I think mm. you know a lot of in the, in my past life, I think a lot of kind of running meetings was all about you know being the guy with the answer and you know showing that I'm really smart. And I think mm. that. First thing is to kind of leave that aside because that is just toxic, you know, to, to kind of creating a connection. So one, realize you're there to connect. Um, the second thing I think is just like, I don't have to search hard for this, but I genuinely get very enthusiastic about people trying to disrupt the status quo about people who are doing really interesting things. And I think that I'm pretty transparent. I'm not a very good dissembler. So I think that comes through. Like I, I genuinely, whether or not, you know, this is something that we can invest in, I'm often really fired up by what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. And so I think that helps create a connection too, because obviously the founder's really excited by it because otherwise they wouldn't be dedicating their life to it. And so if you can share some of that excitement, I think that's a really good platform on which to connect. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're going to like the, relationship is going to be one where we end up working together or not but it does mean that hopefully they feel like there's someone who's on their side in in some way uh you know there's going to be some way to contribute to what they're doing and and kind of level two to that question is again some of your team talked about how not just founders but within founders like young founders is something you particularly enjoy meeting because probably goes back to that energy point earlier they bring a kind of this naive energy which is really exciting but again that can be really tricky to manage because you might have one meeting where you're meeting a seasoned founder who's been doing it for years and then you have the next meeting literally after that with a 20 year old founder who does not know what a PL looks like and does not know what valuation looks like how do you manage yeah. your own sort of mindset like maybe it goes back to some of the time versus energy management point mm. earlier like in a day i'm sure you have so many back-to-back -back meetings and you need to be present in every meeting i mean i find that as a podcast sometimes you do back-to-backs mm. and you're like this is such a creative job if my brain yeah. is not in my right space i'm just going to be jumbling my way through this what do you find in that like do you have a different approach to younger founders versus seasoned founders in terms of connection i think it's not I think a connection is is an individual thing. I don't think it even matters young, old. Like I just don't even mm. put people in those types of categories when I'm thinking about it. I also think that when it comes to younger versus more seasoned founders, it's kind of like, what are you looking for? Like I'm actually not looking for, you know, a certain level of experience. I'm looking for uh, connection to the problem and and like a legitimate, how, how insightful and in-depth is this founder on this particular problem? The fact that they were at Google for 10 years or they've just come out of uni uh, doesn't really matter to me. I'm not looking for a resume. Um, so I think that's the, the the core thing that perhaps unifies all founders is it's not about whether you're young or old. It's like how connected you are, how insightful you are, you know, what, how uh, quickly and, and um, excellently you can build things. Uh, so I think it's it's really just not having that lens, which I think is so uh, destructive in, in the rest of the, the economy is like, oh, well, if you've got 10 years doing X or Y or Z, then, you know, you must take precedence over somebody else. It's like, well, can we get a little, dig a little bit underneath those surface level metrics and really understand what people know and how fired up they are? Um, so that's kind of the first part of your question. The second part in terms of how do I stay present? Um, 
I think it really is. It's never really that much of an issue for me with founders, just because that's what I like mm. doing. I, I think um, I do need to take care of myself. Like, I think that uh, you know, right now you can tell I'm a little bit sick, and um, and so I, I think you know, making sure that I'm not, you know, scheduling 14 zooms in a day is like the a smart move. Um, but but generally, it's not. Uh, that's not the part of my day that I need to really uh, struggle with. I want to zoom out and talk about VC and the ecosystem broadly in, in Australia. Like if we if we imagine a forest, you've got trees, you've got um, birds. I hope you know where I'm going with this. And and you've got and you've got SquarePeg, which is which is also the kind of one of the other firms. And 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 some might some might say that SquarePeg is doesn't have an external narrative the same way as some of the other examples I, I shared just before. Can you can you talk mm-hmm. to that? And particularly because you were at StartMade and StartMade do such a good job of promoting both themselves and the ecosystem and the brands that they're involved with, but then you go into VC land and you kind of look at all the big VCs in Australia, they've all got a different approach to kind of their external facing voice. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's a broad question, but can you, can you talk to that? No, it's a, it's a good question. I think um, my, one of the things that I think is hilarious about VC as an industry is how undifferentiated mm. the the kind of the players are it's kind of like everyone's saying very similar things uh in very similar ways um i i think that for square peg i think you're, you're probably right in that the founders have always had the the position that let our investments let our work let our commitment to founders really speak for us and i think that there's a t- there are times where that's incredibly incredibly powerful like I was trying to win a deal uh, a couple of years ago uh, and the founder was very meticulous in going and talking to all of the the other founders from all over the place who'd been backed by various different VCs and some, you know, local, some of the kind of top VCs internationally. And what he came back and said to us was, hey, everyone speaks really highly of these other top tier funds, but for SquarePeg, it's just on a different level. Like, you know, what are you guys doing? And I think, um, and that sounds really weird to say, and sounds a little bit self-congratulatory, but I think I can say that because it it wasn't my work, right? Like this happened before, um, you know, a lot of the legwork for this happened before I joined. And I think that it comes in this culture of commitment to the founders. So SquarePeg cuts fewer checks, has kind of similar fund size to some of the other big ones, cuts fewer checks, and that means kind of more partner time like more time with the founders more likelihood of follow-on dollars and just more kind of surface area of commitment to those founders and that's something that frankly doesn't scale easily right so that's when you're talking about how do you kind of tell that story more broadly i think that has actually been a real struggle for SquarePeg because the culture is one of let's just quietly really deeply commit to the people who we are one-on-one with and then we'll just trust that somehow the word will get out and to some people it has but i think that it means that people who kind of come in through the front door and are kind of looking at the website or whatever and haven't been exposed to us maybe they don't kind of get that that differentiation and then probably to build in that listeners might not be aware of your presence in israel and in asia if you compare yourself to some of the other funds in australia you've probably got a much bigger global presence with teams based on site in in those countries can can you talk to that about how that adds value to founders where you bring that truly global perspective having teams and investments in other countries (laughs) yeah absolutely um i think there's something really special about having a global lens. And as you said, we're in you know, Southeast Asia, we're in Israel, we have got strong relationships on both coasts of the United States. And I think that fa- the problems that founders have are quite universal. And being able to tap into other founders or toolkits from other parts of the world, as well as you know, follow-on funding from other parts of the world, having that wide-angle lens and those connections across the globe I think is something that we've just seen be a huge part of some of our more successful companies' success. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a great one. And if we talk about the market at the moment, I mean, it's a it's a question that's getting enough attention. So I won't ask the usual question, but maybe I'll ask around scenario planning and 
decision making as a principal, as a member of the leadership team, and as a mm-hmm. sort of line manager as well. How has that sort of evolved post COVID? As we look at we're we're in June now in twenty twenty two, has some of your thinking in terms of funding ability or just appetite for support evolved in over the last few months, given what's happening in other markets? No, I mean, we're very much in the market, you know, trying to make investments and that's where we want to be. You know, we want to be out there having the conversations, finding great founders, backing them. Squarepeg is in a great position in that we raised, you know, our most recent generation of funds uh, in 2021 and actually kind of returned a bunch of money to investors, uh, you know, over the course of the last couple of years. And so we're very well positioned to be making uh, investments. Uh, Do I think that on the founder side, uh, people need to be um, cautious and and be thinking about the market? Yes, absolutely. And I think that probably just starts with having, a. if I was, you know, in an operator working with a really great founder, what would I be uh, recommending? What would I be doing? Uh, One, I would be getting just a very, very good handle on what do our financials look like over the next two years and what are they um, sensitive to? So, you know, if, if revenue does X, Y, or Z, what happens? You know, if we can raise, what does that look like? If we can't raise, what does that look like? Um, and so that's what I would really be be focused on, just making sure you've got that really great dashboard in front of you. I spoke to some founders prior to this recording and one of the founders who I'll leave unnamed mentioned, James is one of the three people I respect the most in the VC ecosystem, which is a huge pro sign from a from a founder maybe they only know three people <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this founder knows a lot more than three people but i won't name the founder um <laughs> but it goes back to your point earlier where we, we asked you about the vc brand versus the partner or the principal mm. how do you look at if we put the vc brands aside for a second and just look at people because i truly believe as a found if you're a founder you're often the partners investing in you because the relationship directly is like kind of like an employee and a manager you're working closely with the manager or the um, leader directly rather than the brand. The brand is more a signal in the mm-hmm. LinkedIn profile. What do you think in Australia, if you talk just broadly, what separates the principles? Like, is it the fund? Is it the size of the fund? Or is it a thesis? Like when you look at your role compared to some of your competitors at other funds, how should founders decide which principle, if they don't have relationships, how should they kind of dissect which principle of partner to work with? That's a great question. I think that it's a there are a bunch of tangibles and there are a bunch of intangibles a bunch of the tangibles i think kind of anchor around the fund and so you can ask a bunch of really basic questions around all right what's the size of this fund how much do they have to deploy what is their track record in terms of supporting founders generally uh how plugged into different networks are they um also just some you know, more in-depth questions like where are they up to in their current generation of funds? So, uh, you know, are we coming toward the end of a fund or are they at the beginning? Do they have an, you know, an opportunities fund, the ability to continue to support uh, my company as it grows out of their target stage, if that target stage is kind of earlier? So, you know, you can ask some of these tangible questions, you get a really good sense of them. The intangibles, I think, really come down to, you know, personality, you know, who are you working with? I think that Ultimately, this job is about creating really high trust relationships. And the higher the trust, like more trust that an investor and a founder have in each other, the more surface area that the investor can see of that company. And so therefore, the more they can help. (laughs) And of course, you've got to be careful you trust, right? Because if you trust the wrong person and they see a lot of the surface area of the company, and then they freak out and they're like, oh, no, I didn't realize it was this messy. I didn't realize there were all these problems. Then you've got just a problem on your hands. You've got just someone who's just dragging you down. So I guess what I'd be looking for in a founder is what I'd really be looking for in any really important relationship. It's uh, resilience, you know, grit. Uh, I'd be looking for someone who is a learner and can and isn't kind of going to wall themselves off from new information because as we kind of confront new new horizons i'm going to need them there with me learning uh, alongside me um and uh i'd be looking for you know just someone i, I get on with someone mm. i feel like i can have that that uh, very open relationship with uh, so those would be some of the things i'd be thinking about in the more intangible side i think it's a really 
useful point because you mentioned at the start of this call about Culture Ramp. If you look at the Culture Ramp founder, I think they've known Blackbird for many, many years, and that relationship was built. I think it's been over a decade. I think Nick's known Didier since they were in the US together. So one could say it's not just a pitch deck and presented and he signed a term sheet. It's a life relationship that's been built over over decades. So I think that's a really important point. I want to talk about investing sort of outside of your comfort zone and, and outside of your sort of VC asset class. It's a question that I ask myself. Like I invest a bit in public markets and I like learning about new areas. The podcast is a good example. How I'm curious, how do you think about learning about areas that are outside of your day job? Do you enjoy investing in public markets or do you invest in art or do you buy NFTs? Like Talk to your personal James Tynan investment style. I am 100% obsessed with VC, C, Series A startups. I don't really do anything else. I mean, yes, do I have a, a crypto wallet? Yes. Have I done much with it? No. And I, But I'm keen to learn more in that space. I'm actually more fascinated on the crypto side by DAOs and what future mm. governance structures for humans working together might be and how... Uh, the things that, that are being built in, inside the crypto space can can um, drive that forward. Um, but in terms of where am I investing, you know, beyond that, I mean, um, I mean, we have a house and a mortgage, so I guess that's a, that's a big one, which, by the way, just is sometimes seems absolutely crazy to me that, that mm-hmm. um, with, with kind of no edge and no real training, so many people are buying this, this kind of leveraging up and buying these huge investments. Uh, but nonetheless, that is something that, that we've done. And um, and But other than that, I'm just obsessed with the one asset class. Talking about real estate reminds me of um, Ed Cowan, who was a previous guest in the show, works at TDM Growth Partners and a former cricket player. He talks about actually why renting is financially better than in, and buying a house. I think he's written an article about it as well. So I'll ask listeners to read that. I want to touch on... Um, Broadly on ed tech and climate tech, I was talking to Lucy, who's your fellow partner, principal at Squarepeg, and she said, ask James about his thesis on climate tech and ed tech. And I know that's a very broad answer. We could talk about that for hours. Mm-hmm. But yes. what's something, because I think they're both very specialized fields, particularly climate tech. And, and I was recently talking to the Regen guys for some work that mm-hmm. I'm doing. And I know, you know Tom really well at Regen as well. And he said, yeah, ask James about climate tech. He's invested in Val. And he's really fascinated by that space. And on Twitter, if someone goes to your profile, you like a lot of climate tech posts. What about climate tech? If there's one thing you're most excited by at the moment, what stands out in climate tech? Well, I mean, the overall position of climate tech is the thing that stands out to me. I, when we were running an offsite uh, with Startmate, I remember Mike Cannon-Brooks came to, mm. uh, to one of these offsites and started talking about just how monumentally screwed we are and that basically it's going to take a global mobilization on the scale of world war ii to uh to get us out of the hole that we're in and suddenly i went from this kind of techno optimist assuming that we invent our way out of this crisis to no we 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 need all hands on deck um and so that's why i started the startmate climate uh, cohort and that brought a bunch of tech curious climate people together with a bunch of climate curious tech people. And, uh, you know, that has been awesome for me because I just started learning from them. And I'm just fascinated by, can we build some of the world's biggest companies in the next kind of eight, 10 years to address some of these incredible problems? Um, what, what's interesting to me in the space now, I mean, a, a bunch of stuff i mean it's kind of hard to boil it down and one of the things that so we're um investors in a company called amber that's an electricity retailer mm. um, i'm an investor in a company called nira which is a kind of a digital twin for infrastructure uh, including a lot of energy and what um what i'm fascinated by is we the, the entire energy space needs to completely change uh, over the over, over the very short term and where and how can startups help drive that change? So part of it is for Nira is if you have a digital twin of your entire energy infrastructure and you can, uh, it's, it's such a high fidelity digital twin that you can literally know what wood that potential, that particular power pole is made out of, then you have the ability to change that in incredible ways. So 
for example, you know, the, the um, AGL uh, situation that's going on right now, mm-hmm. if they are able to kind of pivot that company toward making big changes toward renewables, uh, they're going to have to spend billions of dollars on new transmission lines because renewables don't happen to get generated in exactly the same space where you had a coal-fired power plant. So how do you do that? I mean, even planning for that has in the past taken years and itself millions of dollars just to kind of get a plan down on paper. Whereas with something like Mira, you can, it's, it's as easy as kind of SimCity. You can just kind of work it out, work out where the transmission things should go, get all these other kind of people, like the people funding the renewables projects to kind of link in and, and kind of add their um, information to that plan. So I'm kind of fascinated with how do we make those huge transitions? Energy is just one of them, but, uh, but a big one. I want to bring the conversation back to you and then we'll close with some rapid fire questions. Um, one of your associates in, it, in, your, in your broader team at SquarePeg, Jethro, he said, ask James about what his areas of improvement are. And I said, why should I ask James that? And he goes, James is very self-aware. And I, so I said, Jethro, what is an area you want to improve? And he said, his ability to do admin within SquarePeg is an area he wants to improve. And he said, Dan apparently is very good at that. And, and hopefully he's comfortable with me sharing this publicly. But, but what's an area you want to improve on as a person or as a professional in the workspace? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. I think there's the there's probably two answers. There's the practical and then the the kind of deeper answer. Um, my practical answer is very similar to Jethro's. We're very similar in that the admin side is uh, is tricky for me. Um, one of the reasons, though, if you kind of dig through that, you're kind of like, why is it that I have such trouble kind of digging in and kind of making sure my email is always up to date and that I'm updating the CRM and all of that kind of stuff? And it really comes down to I think a a kind of a deeper question of where that kind of anxiety comes from. Because whenever I'm doing email, I I feel like, oh, there's something that's so much more important Mm. that I should be doing. And, uh, and then I'm kind of jumping toward that and like, why is it that I can't be more calm? And I think really it comes down to, for me, the thing that I need to improve on the most is changing what has traditionally been an external orientation, looking toward others and trying to understand how they perceive me and then being like, oh, how do I look really great in the eyes of other people uh, to getting really in touch with an internal compass and what do I think of me and what do I think I should be doing? And I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, that admin can be a challenge is it's just a bucket of what other people need and what other people want. And so getting in there kind of really triggers me to be like, oh no, I need to be on top of this and I need to be on top of that. Whereas I think where I want to go ultimately is to be much more in tune with, no, no, these are the really important things for me to work on. And uh, if, you know, that hopefully that dovetails a lot with what other people need, um, but not to be bouncing around between uh, those two extremes all the time. I think your point on email is something we can all relate to, particularly newsletters. I feel like it's so many awesome newsletters and I can never keep up with even 10% of them. So if there's any founder out there who's got a solution to that, I'm sure many investors would be interested in talking to them. It's a Neuralink. You just need to be able to download all the information into your brain. Exactly. We've got a couple of minutes left, so I'd love to close out with a rapid fire round of questions. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? non-financial investment in your life oh great question oh oh the thing that came to mind is not a rapid fire (laughs) (laughs) answer please share please share this is this is a bit intense but um when i was uh, about 21 uh i went into rehab for a year uh, for a year for a week uh for a family member it was called family week and i was i was in there with a family member um and to support them and what I realized was that, you know, you just had these intense uh, family conversations, like group therapy, like all that kind of stuff. And I realized that what I thought were hard conversations were not hard conversations. It just made me realize there is no such thing as a conversation that you can't have. The question is, can you have it well? And mm-hmm. so that that investment just kind of shook me out of a, <clears throat> up till then, I think a lifetime of, um, of having easy conversations and not really getting to the core of things. And, and that's been an investment that 
has stuck with me forever. Amazing. And is there one person or quote that inspires you today? Hmm. I'm a I'm a huge Abraham Lincoln stan. Mm. <laughs> I think um I just it's not there's it's not that there's one quote, it's that here's a guy who was just just hammered by life. And every time he was, he found a way to turn that into something beautiful. You know, he, he and his strength and resolve uh, in the face of just incredible difficulty, both on the personal side, you know, losing children um, to the, you know, professional side, which is like half the country deciding to revolt. He was able to take that, that those difficult things and, and turn them into just the most beautiful actions, words, uh, beliefs. Uh, he's, a, he's an incredible guy. And last one to close us out, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share? Oh, it's a good, good question to, to end it off. But uh, no, I think, I, think, um, I think we're good. Great, great. Okay, <laughs> I will take that. Thank you so much, James. That's the finish line. Really glad we did this and thanks for making the time and I hope listeners get something out of it. All the best. You too, mate. There you have it. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and be 1% better. And to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, just subscribe or follow us on your podcast app and on LinkedIn or Instagram.